Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature Ravi Zacharias. Zacharias was born in 1946 in Madras, India. His family was Anglican, but he says that he was an atheist until the age of 17 when he tried to commit suicide by swallowing poison. While in the hospital, a local Christian worker brought him a Bible and told his mother to read to him from John chapter 14. Zacharias says that it was John 14, 19 that touched him and meant to him as a defining paradigm. Because I live, you also will live. He said that he thought, this may be my only hope, a new way of living. Life is defined by the author of life and that he committed his life to Christ by praying, Jesus, if you are the one who gives life as it is meant to be, I want it. Please get me out of this hospital bed well, and I promise I will leave no stone unturned in my pursuit of truth. Today's message is Why I Am Not an Atheist. And a good afternoon to you all. It's a real privilege for me to be addressing this audience and the subject that has been assigned for this afternoon. I'm delighted to recognize that there are many from India, I understand, who work in this facility. I was giving a lectureship at the Lockheed uh, Labs in San Jose some months ago. And as I was driving in, I was told that I was about to enter into the cerebral headquarters of the United States. And that contention was challenged as I was being brought in this afternoon. My colleague who works with me as our director of administration, Chuck Bliss, assured me that even the building here was gray and revealed the gray matter, which was its major strength. From his unprejudiced position, he worked for New England Bell for 30 years before he came to work for me. Hence that opinion of his. I was sitting here thinking of a story I heard very recently about a bandit from Mexico by the name of Jose Rivera, who was constantly crossing over into Texas and making big hauls from the local banks. And they could not trap him one way or the other. So finally, they assigned a big burly Texan sheriff to track him down in Mexico. And they sent this man on a mission, and his assignment was very clear to go and bring Jose Rivera back, either dead or alive. So he went in and uh, searched for the man for many days, finally saw this Mexican bandit sitting in a bar. And he said to him, are you Jose Rivera? I am a sheriff from Texas appointed to bring you back for all the calls you've taken from the banks. The man just mumbled something in Mexican to an elderly gentleman sitting nearby. And the elderly gentleman said to the sheriff, the man says he does not understand English. You will have to speak to him in his native tongue. At which point the sheriff said, I don't speak in his native tongue, so would you please start translating for me? Ask him if he is Jose Rivera. So the man asked him, and the man identified himself. Yes, I'm Jose Rivera. Tell him we have found out that he's been stealing all the money from our banks and so on, so he translated and uh, Jose Rivera turns around and says, so what of it? And the translator looks at the sheriff and says, he says, so what of it? The sheriff says, tell him that if he doesn't tell me where he is hidden all the money, I will shoot him right now. 
So the man translates and says, he says, if you don't tell him where all the money is, he's going to shoot you right now. So Jose pauses for a moment and wonders, ah, what's the point? I may as well tell him where it is. And he says, tell the sheriff if he gets out of this building, makes a right, drives for about half an hour. On the left, he will see a big well. And beside the well, there's a big hole. And buried inside that hole is all the money. And he can take it back. All the millions of dollars are right there. So the translator says, Jose Rivera says, Jose Rivera says, go ahead and shoot. <laughs> And that's what I'm going to do right now. Go ahead and shoot. I understand. And let me maybe set the parameters for this. Time is going to be a factor. When you talk about why I'm not an atheist in 35 to 40 minutes, you may as well try to define God and give five examples in the same span of time. So what I'm going to do, ladies and gentlemen, is speak for about 35 to 40 minutes as best as I can to wrap up the arguments and then give you a chance to ask questions. And my plea is, because of the nature of the discussion, if you will try and keep your questions to the subject matter on hand so that we don't get astray from it and try to introduce further data at that point, that's my first plea. And the second one is, if you ask a question, maybe just go one question per person so that we can give others a chance also. It is my understanding that several years ago, Dr. Duane Gish, the expert in fossils, was here to speak on science and the Bible. I myself am going to deal with the theme this afternoon philosophically. My whole field of graduate work was in the area of philosophy of religion. And my two areas of foci were in analytical philosophy, where you basically examine fundamental statements, whether they be logically correct or logically incorrect. And then developmentally, my field of philosophy was in the study of existentialist philosophers. What I'd like to do is define a few terms for you so that we are comfortable in our interaction and uh, project then to you my basic thesis why I am not an atheist. It is basically a response to some of the arguments that Bertrand Russell presented in his collection of essays entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. So my response is to that. I am talking from a Judeo-Christian perspective. That is my vantage point. I'm coming to you from the biblical vantage point of an omnipotent, omniscient God and a personal God who has communicated to man. That is the first assumption I make. The second is this, when we deal with philosophy, unfortunately, philosophy is such a broad uh, subject anymore. Someone has described philosophers as doodlers with words. And that's, of course, a caricature of philosophy. It can become merely a case of verbal gymnastics. But from my perspective, for a definition this, uh, this afternoon, philosophy comes basically at three levels. Level one is theory. If you're dealing, for example, with Aristotle or Socrates or Plato, you are dealing with theoretical philosophers who give you the fundamentals for any meaningful dialogue. And if you abuse those fundamentals and those categories, this category of thinker would find fault with you. Now, most of us may never get seriously involved with that level of theoretical philosophy. It certainly is not a popular level. The fact of the matter is, it is an indispensable level for meaningful dialogue. Let me repeat that. It is an indispensable level for meaningful dialogue. Level one is theory. 
you violate the theory and the infrastructure will collapse, no matter how beautiful the superstructure is built upon it. Level two is existentialist philosophy, which basically is drama, music, literature. And I think it is fascinating, particularly in America, where existentialist philosophers have probably had one of the most deepest and penetrating impacts of any genre of writings in their history. When you take the combined writings of Sartre or Camus or Nietzsche and translate them into modern plays and literature, you will find that most of our young people today, whether it is the adults who came from the era of uh, rebellion in the 60s or the teenagers of today, are either openly or implicitly existentialist in their behavior. Now, let me try to capture the concept of existentialism for you. The word existentialist really defines itself as existence precedes essence. The subjective overrules the objective. What I feel is more important than what is. What I do determines who I am. And that's why the concept of passion, they hurl themselves into the mainstream of life, the existentialist philosophers do. Now, ironically, the existentialists never ever want to be, wanted to be systematized. Fellows like Sartre resented the fact that we put them into a box. And that's why they never ever went to the classical philosophers for their defense. I do what I do because it feels good, and I shall do it and continue to do it, even if it doesn't feel good for you. And the existentialist continues to find himself as hurled into this existence and defines himself on the basis of what he chooses. Now, that's the kind of man I want to deal with, because even though he never gives a reason for his behavior, his reason has really come about as a result of atheism. And the third level of philosophy, which I will just mention, is neither theory nor drama or literature, but it is your day-to-day -day conversations around the kitchen table. Your son might come home one day at age 9 or 10 and say, Dad, I have been told that I am not to do such and such because it is bad. Why is it bad? Now, obviously, you're not going to go back to some platonic dictums, nor are you going to start quoting Sartre, Camus, Nietzsche. But you're just going to turn to him and say, look, son, in this home, we believe we should not do this, and therefore, don't do it. And as the boy grows older, he is going to question his conclusions, and he is either going to change his conclusions or look for better reasons to come to the same conclusions. Now, those are the three levels of philosophy, rigorously theoretical, secondly, dramatic and music uh, art forms, and third, the day-to-day -day interaction that we have with our friends or with our family. Now, the question of atheism at an existential level is my uh, subject for this afternoon. Nietzsche, the German philosopher, who ironically had his father for a minister and both of his grandfathers for, for preachers, somehow himself became an atheist, never really goes into some deep defense of it, but Nietzsche, in one of his parables called The Madman, compiled in a writing called Thus Spake Zarathustra, Nietzsche says this, Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I'm looking for God. I'm looking for God. 
As many of those who did not believe in God were standing there, he excited considerable laughter. Have you lost him then, said one. Did he lose his way like a child, said another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they shouted and shouted and laughed him to scorn. But the madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone, he cried. I'll tell you, we've killed him. You and I, we are all his murderers. But how did we do this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns, maybe? Are we not perpetually falling? Backwards, forwards, sidewards, and in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not suddenly become colder? Is not more and more night coming on us all the time? Must not lanterns have to be lit in the morning hours? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything of God's decomposition? God's decomposed too, you know, and he's dead. He remains dead and we've killed him. But now how shall we, the murderer of all murderers, compose ourselves? Because that which was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood from us? With what water can we purify ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games will we need to invent? Is not this the greatest of deeds too great for us to handle? Must we not ourselves have to become God simply to seem worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed and whoever shall be born after us for the sake of this deed shall be part of a higher history than all history hitherto. It has been related further that on the same day the man entered many churches and there sang a requiem, Eternum Deo. Let out and quieted, he said to have retorted each time, what are these churches now if they are not tombs and sepulchres of a dead God? God is dead and we've killed him. Nietzsche, of course, meant that the philosophical mind of the 19th century could no longer endure the theistic postulates of that time. And therefore, God philosophically had died. I want you to try and follow this line of reasoning as best as I can state it. Folks, ideas have consequences. That is the title of a book by Richard Weaver, professor of English literature, University of Chicago in the 40s. And I mentioned that because in the 1980s, Alan Bloom, professor of philosophy, same university, has now written a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And the fact of the matter is, if you'd read Richard Weaver, all Bloom is doing is expanding upon the same foundation. In fact, the publishers are now republishing Alan, uh, Richard Weaver's book because the fiber of Bloom's uh, presuppositions are right there. The fact that there has been a kind of a death of systematic thought and meaningful life since the death of God. Now, also we need to understand that Hitler based his economic and political theory on Nietzsche's philosophical postulates. Hitler did very little reading. He was an obscure kind of an individual, but the one of the writers he did read was Nietzsche. And Nietzsche's idea of the Superman, the Ubermensch, the, the man who was going to conquer the weak, the strong race, exploiting the weaker race, Hitlerian political theory was based on Nietzschean existentialist nihilism and despair. Just like Alexander the Great 
based his political theory on Aristotelian unity in diversity kind of thinking. And uh, Alexander wanted to bring the unity of language and Greek thought amidst the diversities of philosophies of this world. Ideas do have consequences. And once we begin to realize that, it is imperative that we be honest when we take our presuppositions. I don't think it is accidental that Karl Marx was writing his Das Kapital at the same time that Darwin was writing his Origin of Species. And Engels proposed to Marx that he dedicate his book to Darwin because Darwin had given him the scientific theory on the basis of which Marx could sustain his economic theory. Ideas have consequences. So let's move through the honest through these consequences now very, very honestly. One of my professors of philosophy used to tell the story of a man who woke up one morning and told his family that he thought he was dead. At which point the family thought they'd endure this joke for a little while, but every morning he'd get up and say, well, are you convinced yet that I'm dead? And then he started to spread this rumor through his workplace. So finally they decided to give this man some kind of treatment, sent him to all kinds of psychiatrists who couldn't help him. Finally, they put him in touch with a team of peripheral vascular surgeons, and they tried to demonstrate just one proposition to him, only living people bleed. Only living people bleed. And finally, after some highly persuasive overhead charts and projectors and all the data mustered up, the man weakly said, all right, I guess only living people bleed. As soon as he said that, one of the doctors with a pin hidden in his pocket whipped it out, plunged it into this man's veins, and he looked at it and said, Great Scott, I guess dead people bleed too. <laughs> now, for some, persuasion is impossible. I have met them. There are some who will look at you in a classroom and say, How do I know that I exist? I have never taught a philosophy class where somebody hasn't asked that. And I always give them the answer that Dr. Nathan from the University of New York did when one of his students said, sir, how do I know that I exist? And Dr. Nathan lowered his glasses and said, and whom shall I say is asking? <laughs> See, folks, there are some undeniable realities in this world. You cannot deny your existence without affirming it at the same time. To deny it is to affirm it. And some of these denials are going to be very difficult to affirm without making a mutilation of the philosophy itself. If there is no God, I believe it was Malcolm Muggeridge who said, if God is dead, somebody is going to have to take his place. Either megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power or the drive for pleasure, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. If God is dead, one emergent power will take over, either the megalomaniacal drive of a Hitlerian philosophy or the Hefnerian drive of hedonism at all costs. And may I suggest the reason America is struggling today in trying to analyze her own culture is because she is logically driven to one of these, of these two extremes and her educational system does not know how to handle it Given its presupposition, given its presuppositions, where ethics is a private matter, not a public matter anymore. So the first thing that happens, I believe, is that there will be no 
absolute morality if there is no God. Morality and ethics becomes a highly relativized system of thought. In the field of university study, they study it under what they call meta-ethics, and they deal with it only emotively. They deal with it only emotively. Ethics has become a kind of a free-for-all arena. He who shouts loudest or hits hardest wins the ethical debate. But you see, this whole idea of cultural relativism came to a peak during the war. After the Nurem during the Nuremberg trials, the question was raised in some of its most profound implications. I had the privilege, or I might call it the pain, of walking with my wife, with my colleague, and some friends through Auschwitz last year. I have been in Vietnam during the peak of the war. I have been in Cambodia during the peak of the war. A few months ago, I was walking through the streets of Beirut, seeing the, 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 the destruction of a city that was once called the Pearl of the Middle East, and it's tragic. But I have never walked through halls like that of Auschwitz. It leaves you categorically numbed. There is no discussion that takes place amongst those who are walking through. Please believe me. One room with thousands of scalps of women's hair, out of which the hair was used to weave gunny sacks. One room with pictures of castrated children. Mengele carried on his experiments there. The gas ovens still stand. They were obliterating them at the rate of 12,000 a day. And interestingly enough, in that small group, there were several people with tears running down their face. There's a rather heavy set man standing very grimly out there. And he noticed me, my wife, and Chuck there. And he comes over to me and he says, Excuse me, what kind of work do you do? I said, Sir, I'm a professor, I'm a preacher. He said, I guess you've had a lot to think about today, haven't you? I said, indeed, I have. I said, what kind of work do you do? He said, I'm a judge from the city of New York. I said, I suppose you've had a lot to think about it also. He said, it's blown my mind. You see, in the Nuremberg trials, the judges defending themselves on the slaughter basically had one idea to give. We were operating according to the law of our own land. That was the answer. Till one of the prosecutors throws his hands up in despair and he says, but gentlemen, is there not a law above our laws? Is there not a law above our laws? To which Nietzsche would say, no. Is there any up or down? Is there any hot or cold? Why do we have to light lanterns in the morning hours? Why is there such a stench in the, in the atmosphere now? Who gave us the power to wipe away a horizon and so on and so forth? There is no law above our laws. You can talk to ethicists on any university campus in the world. They will tell you that ultimately when you're dealing with a community or a cultural ethic, there is no rational basis for it, at best a pragmatic one. When Bertrand Russell, by the way, which is why I believe atheism is a logical impossibility, I have never met a consistent atheist because it is logically impossible to be one. Because an atheist makes a fundamental mistake in the foundations of logic. He posits an absolute negation. There is no God. And the only way to posit an absolute negation and make it stick is if you yourself have infinite knowledge. 
So how can one posit a non-existence of an infinite being while he himself is assuming infinite knowledge? To posit the non-existence of an infinite being. That's why Russell, when he had to debate the Jesuit priest, said, I'm not an atheist, I'm an agnostic. But an agnostic, rigorously, is one who doesn't know. And an honest agnostic must say, if you give me enough evidence, I am willing to listen. As many honest agnostics I've met will say so. And when, when, uh, when Copleston said to Lord Russell, how do you differentiate between good and bad? Russell says the same way I differentiate between blue and green. Copleston said to him, but sir, you differentiate between blue and green by seeing, don't you? Russell said, yes. He said, how do you differentiate between good and bad? Russell said, on the basis of feeling, what else? Lord Copleston, I mean, uh, Father Copleston was a very kindly man. If I'd had the privilege of countering Russell at that point, I'd have said, Lord Russell, in some cultures, they love their neighbors. In other cultures, they eat them, both on the basis of feeling. Do you have a personal preference? <laughs> but you see, where do you go for a moral absolute? And folks, I want to say this very truthfully, as one involved on the campus these days, in a variety of settings, the last five years I've spoken and probably the campus of at least 40 countries of the world, there is a search for an ethic. And we've stepped onto a slippery slope. I know this is a volatile argument, but just, just bear in mind how volatile it can become if we continue on this basis. When some time ago the question came up on what life was defined at at a court case in California, because a well-known pediatrician who was trying to perform an abortion had the baby born alive. And then all of a sudden, the head uh, pediatrician there did not know what to do with it, nor did the nurse. So they scrambled for this man who had delivered the baby and was supposed to have aborted the baby. And the mother was going to file a suit, they knew. So they scrambled for this particular doctor who came running up and said to the head pediatrician, I think I will drown it in the kitchen, in, in the sink. At which point the head pediatrician said absolutely nothing because he didn't want to be implicated. And the, 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 the man who delivered the child finally took hands tightly around the neck and two to three minutes later said, that's all right, the baby is now dead. And the court dealt with it. And the question they had to deal with was, how do you define human life? At which point California defines human life as the irreversible ceasing of brain activity. That's what death is, the irreversible ceasing of brain activity. So the moot point was, when this baby was delivered, did anybody check the baby for brain activity? Answer, no. Then how do we know that according to our laws, it was not already born dead? And the enormity of such implications, uh, biogeneticists are all dealing with this. Not one of us can escape from it. One philosopher in forensic studies says this, ours is an age where ethics has become obsolete. It is superseded by science, deleted by psychology, dismissed as emotive by philosophy. It is drowned in compassion, evaporates into aesthetics, and retreats before relativism. The usual moral distinctions between good and bad are simply drowned in a maudlin emotion in which we have more sympathy for the murderer than for the murdered, for the adulterer than for the betrayed, and in which we have begun to believe that the real guilty party, the one who somehow caused it all, is the victim and not the perpetrator of the crime. Tough issues. You go off the gold standard, you no longer know 
what your money is really worth. You go off the absolute standard, and ethics is up for grabs. If there is no God, there is no absolute moral law. If there is no God, ultimately, there is no hope. And as the existentialist Albert Camus said, death is philosophy's only problem. Well, <laughs> no, that's a pretty big problem, isn't it? <laughs> Considering it's one experience we all have to go, to go through. And the one experience none of us goes through until we have to. Why is it that death leaves us totally mystified? Now, you know, I can theorize about this as a speaker and as a lecturer, but I no longer can theorize about it after having buried my father and my mother. And somewhere in the dilemma of real existence comes the question, what happens to a human being when he or she dies? It doesn't matter how brilliant our minds are. If you were to hold on to your little baby dying, or clutching a loved one dying, all of your scientific training or my philosophical training is going to look bankrupt at that moment if we cannot answer this one question. It is very, very significant that we must answer it, what happens to a human being when he dies? Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist, says, I have answered all the questions except one, and that question is why I don't commit suicide. He said, and I suppose the answer to that is, the defense of that is, if I committed suicide, I'll be using my freedom to take away my freedom. Pretty good answer, isn't it? They only keep setting it back one further step. And I don't believe it is any accident that we continue to raise that question for at least two reasons. Number one, death raises the question of injustice. How can you deal with a man who has been unjust all his life and started to obliterate human beings. And no justice seems to come to him. You know, it is interesting that Stalin was once upon a time a seminary student. And then he abandoned his faith in God. And Stalin became an obliterator of humanity. And said to somebody, you do not bring about a revolution with silk gloves. When somebody asked him how long he planned to carry on the slaughter, he said, as long as it takes. Now you say, wait a minute, when my loved one dies, I have to raise the question about injustice. Or there's the other question, is this final when a human being dies? And I want you to know that as a speaker, I have gotten closer to human beings when I have been with them through their grieving process than through any other time in their lives. Something about death helps you become extremely realistic and vulnerable. I mentioned that without God, there is no answer for morality. I mentioned that without God, there is no answer for death. And we seem to go on in this extraordinary cycle. Thirdly, and most importantly, without God, there is no meaning. There is no meaning. The existentialists have said that to us. You become the random collocation of atoms hurled in to try and find your meaning. You see, the fundamental philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, had one search. How can I find unity in diversity? If you look at every American coin, you will see the words, e pluribus unum. 
out of the many, one. If you go back to the use of words, where does the word quintessence come from? When you say, what's the quintessence of life? It's because one early philosopher said there are four essences, earth, air, water, fire. To which his students said, wait a minute, we are looking for the one essence. You've given me four. What is the quintessence that unites these four essences? In fact, if you look at the very word university, it is attempting to find unity in diversity. Anyone graduated from university lately? The fact of the matter is, they'll be better described as pluriversities. Because we, gra we graduate with fragments of education, unable to put the two together. The medical man does not understand the lawyer. The lawyer is delighted he has the medical man. So he can make some, uh, some uh, rigorous cases on it. The philosopher despises the behavioral sciences because it's moving from what is to what ought. The behaviorist despises the theorist in ethics because he says there is an ought, but he's not giving an answer where this oughtness comes from. And so you graduate from university, everybody's saying, you really can't believe in anything. Two years ago, the professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto spoke and at the graduating class, and his basic subject was entitled something about nothing. Well, at least he was honest. The English thinker talking about the contradiction with which modern man lives says this, the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never be a real revolutionist. And the fact that he doubts everything gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind, and the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. Thus he writes one book complaining that imperial oppression insults the purity of women. Then he writes another book, a novel, in which he insults it himself. He curses the Sultan because Christian girls lose their virginity, then curses Mrs. Grundy because they keep it. As a politician, he cries out that war is a waste of life, then as a philosopher that all life is a waste of time. A Russian pessimist denounces a policeman for killing a peasant, then proves by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. A man denounces marriage as a lie, then denounces aristocratic profligates for treating it as a lie. He calls a flag a bauble, then blames the oppressors of Poland or Ireland because they take away that bauble. The man of this school meeting, the man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he's lost his right to rebel against anything. Fascinating. Today's Wall Street Journal, which was handed to me by my colleague as we came here, page 36, critique of a book called Putting God Back in the Sky. The book is called A Brief History of Time from the Big Bang to Black Holes by Stephen W. Hawking. Now, Stephen Hawking holds the Lucasian chair of, uh, of mathematics at Cambridge, which was once held by Newton. He is considered, and I quote, he is known as the smartest man in physics since Einstein. And then he goes on to critique the book, Mr. Hawking, you see, does not blush 
to bring God back into the act of creation. And the book is critiqued here. And the last paragraph Hawking says is this, as he seeks to find the answers of this God, he says, if we find the answer to that uh, about our reason for existence, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then we would know the mind of God, for man is looking for why he is here in this world. I didn't say that, folks. This is one of the smartest minds considered since Einstein. I'd love to meet him. Meaning. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. Have you ever wondered why we don't question the issue of meaning as far as dogs and cats are concerned? We never wonder what a dog is. See, a dog is a dog is a dog. We don't have conferences to analyze what is the meaning of dogginess. <laughs> we don't have conferences on the key cat. You know, what is cattishness? A dog is a dog is a dog. A cat is a cat is a cat. We are the only ones who don't know who we are, and we are supposed to be the smartest of the bunch. <laughs> meaning. What is meaning in life? Pascal, the father of the computer and the discoverer of the barometer, who died at the age of 39, when he died, in the lapel jacket was pinned in the greatest discovery he'd ever made. His personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And when you read his book, The Pensees, you find nothing meant of his scientific ability at all. Pascal found that the greatest discovery he made was when he came to know God. James Simpson, the discoverer of chloroform. Somebody said to him once, when benevolence shall have run its course, when there shall be no sick to heal, no disease to kill, when all I have engaged about comes to a dead stop, what is to fill this heart and thought and powers of mind? This man, who at the age of 14 was in medical school, at the age of 18 had received his MRCS. This man in his mid-20s, who was head of the, the Department of Gynecology there, who tried to relieve pain in the bodies of human beings so that he did not want people to be operated upon screaming with agony. So delightful was his discovery that when he first gave a woman an anesthetic at point of delivery, she named her baby Anesthesia. But his search was for the inner emptiness and the greatest discovery Simpson made, said he, was when he found that personal contact with God. Without God, there is no law. Without God, there is no hope. Without God, there is no meaning. And lastly, without God, if you postulate no God and you turn out to be wrong, there is no recovery. If you postulate there is no God, and you turn out to be wrong, there is no recovery. That was exactly Pascal's wager. And we don't understand it. We think Pascal was some kind of a goon walking around saying, better to be one than not be one. No, no, no. Pascal assumed that the existentialist had one point. You will be happy doing what you want to do. Pascal says, fine. I am happy serving God. That was his retort. If you tell me, whatever you find to do that makes you happy, do it. Blaise Pascal said, following God brings me happiness. So, Mr. Existentialist, I've really not lost out by your philosophy. On the other hand, if mine becomes true, you're a real loser. And he says it this way, should a man be in error? 
in supposing the Christian religion to be true, he could not be a loser by mistake. Now think about that. Think about it existentially. Think about it pantheistically. Think about it humanistically. What criterion would you bring to bear to condemn a man who has believed himself to be a Christian? There's possibly only one or two major religious systems that could critique that statement, but I would bring another apologetic to deal with that. So my question now is to the skeptic and the atheist. Should a man be in error in supposing the Christian religion to be true? He could not be a loser by mistake, but how irreparable is his loss and how inexpressible his danger who should err in supposing it to be false. If Christ was really who he claimed to be and truly trying to find redemption for man, and we've turned around and called him a liar and say, that's not what you really are. And it turns out that Christ was right and the atheist is wrong. The atheist has absolutely no recovery at that point. Well, the words of Christ says there's a finality to the choices we make regards theism or atheism. Now, folks, there are many, many other dimensions that one can take. But the fact of the matter is, we talk about no law, no hope, no meaning, and no recovery. Let me close with what one writer talks about the creed of the atheist, and then I'll throw it open for questions. A British journalist says that, we believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your definition of knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything's getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Washington might appreciate this comment here. <laughs> Jesus was a good man just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes the nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end and if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all except perhaps Stalin, Hitler, and Chinggis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What's selected is average. What's average is normal. What's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors and the Russians will be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. And then he puts this postscript. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, youths go looting, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshipping his maker. Atheism is illogical and existentially self-destructive. That is why I am not an atheist. You've been listening to Ravi Zacharias. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.